Welcome to Malpractice Insider, a patient safety podcast of case studies from the Harvard Medical System, from Crico, the insurance program for all of the Harvard Medical Institutions and their affiliates. The following case is based on closed claims in the Harvard Medical System. Some details may be changed to mask identities. My mother was coughing and having trouble breathing. So she went to the doctor and they thought she had pneumonia. She ended up seeing three doctors and they all missed what she really had, which was a blood clot. I can't even believe I'm saying this. It all happened within a week. She called them again and all they gave her was a refill for her inhaler. The next day, she was dead. A 55-year-old female patient had a history that was significant for obesity, hypertension, asthma, and anxiety. She presented to urgent care complaining of shortness of breath, hemoptysis, and persistent cough for three days. She reported pain, 6 to 7 out of 10, in her posterior right shoulder and right calf. The nurse's assessment revealed a pulse of 120 and a 94% oxygen saturation on room air. These were documented in handwritten notes to be entered later into the patient's electronic record. The family medicine physician on duty examined her, but did not review the nursing notes, and during the exam, the patient only complained of cough and hemoptysis. So the physician and the patient never addressed the tachycardia and low O2 saturation or the patient's complaint of pain. The doctor ordered a chest x-ray, and the wet read revealed cardiomegaly and the possibility of slight infiltrates. The patient was given a prescription for Leviquin for potential pneumonia. The final radiology report noted marked cardiomegaly on the x-ray and mild central pulmonary vascular prominence and no infiltrates. The radiologist recommended a chest CT scan if hemoptysis persisted. The patient was not informed of this result. Three days later, the patient returned to the urgent care clinic with continued shortness of breath, but she denied any calf pain at this time. Her own PCP examined her. Her cough prevented her from lying flat at this visit. An examination revealed a pulse of 130, O2 saturation of 96% on room air, and clear lungs. During a STAT cardiology consult, the cardiologist saw the patient without access to the PCP's notes, which had not yet been entered. The patient declined a STAT echocardiogram, instead scheduling it for the following week. A pulmonary consult was ordered. Two days later, the patient called her PCP complaining of coughing up more dark red blood and requesting a refill on her inhaler, and that was ordered. Within 24 hours of this phone call, the patient died of a massive pulmonary embolism. Autopsy revealed the patient had been showering emboli for weeks. The patient's family alleged that both family medicine physicians the nurse, the radiologist, and the cardiologist were negligent for failing to diagnose pulmonary embolism. The nurse, radiologist, and cardiologist were eventually dropped from the case, which was settled in excess of a million dollars. To discuss the patient safety and risk management aspects of this case, Dr. Jonathan Einbinder joins us now. Dr. Einbinder is an urgent care provider in Boston and is vice president for advanced data analytics and coding at Crico in the Harvard system. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. What jumps out at you right away as we start to think about preventing this kind of tragic case outcome? I think it probably went wrong at the very beginning. You know, when the patient when a patient comes in, especially to urgent care, you know, the patient comes in with a complaint, and as a urgent care provider, and by the way, that's what I do for my clinical practice is urgent care. You often have 
a working diagnosis, you have an opinion about what the case is likely to be, you've already, um, to, to use the epidemiologic term, you already have a framing bias. You've got a presumptive diagnosis and how you think things are going to go. This patient came in and was thought to be a pneumonia patient um, or a hemoptysis patient. And hemoptysis is when there's blood that's being coughed up. Those things can be urgent or emergent, um, but they don't have to be. As long as she's not massively bleeding and as long as she's not unstable, then the treatment would be quite appropriate to give her antibiotics and send her home and, and watch and see what happens, which is what they did. The issue, I suspect, was really one of two things. And it's either the failure to consider pulmonary embolism in the differential diagnosis or, you know, a framing bias, again, to use the epidemiologic term, not considering that diagnosis would be would be one potential issue. And there's a lot of reasons that could happen. And it's, again, we're human. Everybody's human. Um, and you can forget. You cannot think about it. You could be busy, distracted, behind in your schedule. You know, there's lots of reasons to not think about it. The other problem has to do with one of patient assessment, which is then when you're actually evaluating the patient, um, it is, you know, what they look like, how fast they're breathing. In this case, you know, one of the things that really struck out is she had a very high heart rate, uh, a tachycardia. I think her heart rate was reported at 120. That, to me, would be a big red flag that something is going on, and, and that would raise my suspicion that I needed to do something here beyond just, you know, send her home. Yeah. Now, how do you avoid the trap of focusing too narrowly on a single theory? I think there's really, um, you know, I guess I would divide those into two categories. And one is a set of system things, and the other is a set of individual things. And the individual things are the ones we always think about, which is either ask the student or be asked if we were students, have you considered PE? That was always, you know, the question from the resident or the attending. You'd be presenting a case and they'd say, have you thought about pulmonary embolism? So it's just one of those things you always were schooled to think about. But now you're relying on the individual to remember to do that. Vowing to remember is not a um, successful quality improvement strategy. The other approach is now you need to figure out how to build things into the system. That's a very hard thing to do, but there are some things that can be done, right? So so one of them would be to leverage the, the team so you don't rely on the individual as much. In this case, there is a nurse who did the triage and took the phone call and did the vital signs and talked to the patient, um, and that information wasn't readily communicated to the physician. I don't know what communication happened, but it wasn't communicated. It wasn't highlighted. The concerns of the, of the nurse who may have been thinking of PE at that point, you know, there's another brain that could be involved. Um, I'm going to imagine, I know an x-ray was done, which was appropriate, um, the radiologist can help as well, but you need to tell the radiologist enough about the clinical scenario for the radiologist to be of help. So if you had communicated to the radiologist that this was a 55-year-old woman with hemoptysis, tachycardia, marginal oxygen saturation, and shoulder pain, the radiologist is able to now do his, his or her own interpretation Think about the differential diagnosis, things like, you know, whether this is uh, pneumonia, whether it's gallbladder disease, whether it's a pulmonary embolism. And they could say something in their assessment, like, you know, a chest X-ray is not a good way to evaluate for pulmonary embolism. If you're concerned about it, I think you should do a pulmonary um, 
CT pulmonary angiogram. So I think that one mechanism is to leverage the other members of the team. Another mechanism would be to use some protocols and decision support. So, for example, if a patient comes in who has an elevated heart rate and a marginal oxygen saturation, trigger the protocol that says think about pulmonary embolism and suggest that to the doctor or the nurse in the triage system or in the in the um, clinical decision supporting electronic health record or, or, or those sorts of things. I think there's another point. A patient returning repeatedly for the same complaint is one of those triggers. Um, so in this case, a patient returning three days later and then calling two days later um, probably should have raised flags that maybe we need to be rethinking this. There was just information sort of in pockets in different places, and it's really impressive how much this was disjointed in terms of communication among the different providers. How can we go after that? It's a great question, and and what you're seeing in this case is very typical, right? So there are multiple providers involved in the care of the patient. There's the nurse, the urgent care physician, the primary care physician, plus the radiologist, plus the cardiologist, I suppose. Information needs to be conveyed amongst all of those people. One of the things the case did comment on or the case description commented on um, is the idea that information is gathered, it's documented, but it's documented kind of in a temporary format until the clinician can get around to doing the formal documentation in the electronic health record. So the nurse might jot the vital signs down on a piece of paper, and maybe they're not available in the record to the physician at the time of the encounter. The triage might happen, but the full triage note might not be available. The physician's note in the EHR who saw the patient for in this case, I think it was the PCP, the patient had a consult with cardiology, but the PCP's note wasn't yet available. So there's no easy solution to this, but it's the availability of that information um, is just so critical, and it's often not available. So I think there's also the, the need here to think about ways to capture and convey critical information um, in very timely ways you know, automated capture of vital signs that go directly into the EHR that don't require manual entry, for example, which is the way my clinic does it, to have triage notes available, to have policies and procedures that specify when documentation should be done. So I think it's a combination of, of policy and procedure coupled with um, measurement and auditing and feedback, um, but it's also... I think automating things to cut the you know the clinician out of the loop, if you will, as much as possible. So probably all all of those things. So, Jonathan, when you look at this case, does it seem like such an unusual or rare situation, or does it fit more into a pattern of of a medical error that you might see resulting from common risks, things that we should look out for? I think there is absolutely nothing remarkable about this case. This is very typical, um, with the possible exception is that the hemoptysis, the, the blood and the coughing up blood, is something that can be seen in pulmonary embolism. But somebody coming in with um, a cough, shortness of breath, maybe a little bit of chest pain, it, it, it's just such a typical visit, and most of the time it's nothing or nothing serious. 
a couple things here, in my opinion, should have triggered more scrutiny, and that were, was really the elevated heart rate and the marginal oxygen saturation. There is the history that was given to the nurse of calf pain and shoulder pain, but that almost seems unfair in terms of, man, if the doctor had really understood that part of the history, then I, I can't imagine how you wouldn't think of a pulmonary embolism. But no, this is an absolutely typical case. And this case was tragic for the family, and uh, you can have some sympathy for the providers as well. Absolutely, yeah. I guess that's the part that I look at is, you know, myself and any of the any of my colleagues were always so concerned that we're going to make a mistake um, and miss something that we shouldn't miss, and that's going to result in harm or, in this case, even death of a patient. It, you know, the fact is, it happens. We're, we're all human, you know, so I do have a lot of, lot of sympathy and empathy for the, for the providers here. Clearly a lot of sympathy and empathy for the patient and her family as well. And, you know, again, the desire to really put systems in place, um, you know, capitalist systems that try to uh, minimize this kind of mistake and not have to rely on um, sort of heroic actions of an individual to um, not make a mistake. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Dr. Jonathan Einbinder is an internist in primary and urgent care and vice president for advanced data analytics and coding at CRICO. I'm Tom Agello. Thank you for listening to Malpractice Insider, a podcast of case studies from the Harvard Medical System, from CRICO, the insurance program for all of the Harvard Medical Institutions and their affiliates, bringing a data-driven approach to reducing medical error through clinical analysis of malpractice claims.